Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Welcome to Polycast episode 398. I am Makalua. With me as usual, Canis Albinus. J.G. Wentworth. <laughs> the Man Team. Why? And Mega Bears Fan. Oh my gosh, finally, we're back again. We exist. Maybe, maybe I'll actually release January's episode at some point, now that we actually have access to the FTP again. Technical issues, Indeed. internet, technical issues. Uh, it's been a rough year. <laughs> it's only March. I'm in my second uh, medication transition, so it's like, oh no, not again. Okay, so uh, I uh, turned on Steam the other day, looking in my library, and I see, oh, Civ 6, it's, got, it's blue, so it's got an update. I go over to the update and look at it. 2K Launcher version 1.50 release notes, uh, to which I immediately felt deflated because, let me tell you the patch notes, new and improved user interface. In improved launcher update management, general performance improvements, miscellaneous bug fixes. We like to know the miscellaneous fixes, though. Come on. No. I'd no. like to know the UI improvements, too. Is that all just in the launcher, or is that in the game? It doesn't say, because these are the worst patch notes in the history of mankind. But here's the more important thing. The only thing I want to see on these patch notes is remove 2K launcher from universe. <laughs> If we wanted a launcher, we would ask for a launcher. If we wanted a launcher, we wouldn't use Steam. And God forbid, Epic. I mean, Steam is already the launcher. Like, yeah. what we're saying is we don't want two or three or four launchers. We would like to just be able to use the one Steam launcher. And if you are going to give us another launcher, at least make it a rocket launcher. So, uh, we go to the, um, usual thing where we uh, take a look at the Steam reply to this. Um, please fix, fix some game bugs and fix the crashes for everybody who can't play the game. Yeah, the only reason people use this launcher is to click the play button, so why can't we just click the play button in Steam? Fix multiplayer. The best patch notes in relation to this launcher would be, removed launcher, game now uses Steam menu for DirectX 9, 10, 12, as did in launch. And Those also in games. Civ Five, you know that worked fine yeah. in Civ Five. Yeah, and there's and still a laundry list of known bugs and issues that are being reported by the community. So, like, it's not like there aren't things Firaxis could do to improve the game. Actually, that is a brilliant idea. I am going to post something in uh, Civ Fanatics if I remember to do it, where I will get people to crowdsource all the remaining bugs, and then I will put them all in a PDF and distribute it to the community so that every time 2K launches a, gives us a launcher update, we can just all send it to their inbox. <laughs> Make their inbox so full of this that they have to take notice. Unfortunately, it might be an evergreen PDF similar to Paradox bugs for many years. 
Also, what? after the first couple of times, you're going to get auto spam filtered. Uh, probably oh. immediately. I mean, if we if there's a way to prove that, then we can just take it to um, who's the biggest rabble rouser in the gaming press world? Is it still Kotaku? Ugh. I'm I'm trying to think of the most slimy one we can use. I know, but that means we have to interact with Kotaku. But okay, I guess it's not officially. It's just an agent. We don't have to actually deal with a company. It's true. Yeah, grassroots uh, resistance to these crappy launcher patches. I still don't understand what even the, like, corporations see as value in having these launchers. I mean, EA did kind of get kicked off of Steam once for using a launcher, so you'd think that they would have learned. Well, advertisements, because that's what runs in there is advertisements for all the other games under their umbrella. Maybe it'll catch your eye. Because it catches maybe a small fractional percentage, they think it's worth it. But again, like, they do that already in the game on the main menu. Like, there's a little thing at the bottom of the screen that says, hey, have you tried, you know, New Frontiers patch or whatever? Like, yeah, or not, the- just, not, not just the rest of the Civ stuff. They want you to try and get, play other 2K things. Things are published, so they'll advertise yeah. it. Like Civ, Civ Meyer's Civilization uh, Twitter posted a picture of some Civ leader with Tiny Tina, like we should care, because they've got that Borderlands thing coming out. I'm just like, I, I already know you already have an Instagram, you already have a Twitter, you already get pay for advertisements on Steam, on every freaking news website that anyone ever sees in regards to gaming. You, well, assuming that people are still living in the Dark Ages and not using the mandatory ad removal implements um why do we need this too it's just stupid that's how advertising think is though even if it's one percent extra it's worth the one percent because it's extra yeah they it's ridiculous they think that every moment of our lives we need to spend like looking at advertisements like if advertisers had their way like we would never not be looking at advertisements which means we wouldn't ever be able to actually buy or use the products that are being advertised because all we would be doing is seeing the advertisements i'm still not convinced that advertising works i mean they generate money somehow it's just a matter of like trade-offs when it comes to that it's like it if does. somebody's literally not aware of the product at all, then they're not going to buy it. And then, you know, if it's like saturated and they already know about it plenty and they already want it, then it's not going to do anything. So there's somewhere between there where you have an optimal amount of spending uh, slash saturation for it. And uh, where exactly that is, is uh, certainly not subtle science. As it turns out, if you put all your games on a single game platform launcher, like, you know, Steam, everybody knows about all your games. That way, you don't have to advertise because you can see it on Steam. Yeah, and it's not well, like Steam, it's, Steam it's might not, not elevate you though, depending. But it's not like 2K is like some tiny independent, you know, developer that's just releasing like anime graphic novels or whatever, like which show up all the time on Steam anyway. But like 2K is a big publisher; all their games are going to show up on the main page on Steam when you launch it because they're, you know, the three or four games that they uh, release a year are all big anticipated titles that get well, lots of advertising and promotion anyway. And every time they that there's a new 2K game out, all the other 2K games go on sale. So it's like, what? why are you bothering? You're, you're wasting money. No, There's nobody who doesn't know about this already. I mean, truly, they're probably getting more from the publisher weekends and stuff like that than they are from 
this, but that, you know, that's advertising brain must advertise all times. Yeah. I would say on average the, uh, today, people tend to spend more on advertising than is probably necessary. Although that might not be true for every company. It's just the ones we notice because, well, they're spamming us. I mean, my company pays $600 for advertising for the whole year and it's in one place and that's all we need. So. Yeah, although I understand the devs not wanting to centralize all of their stuff on Steam just in case, like, relationships go bad with Steam for whatever reason or something happens to it. You don't want to get, like, completely erased. But that doesn't mean you need a launcher. You don't need a launcher because of that. Yeah, I mean, it is on other platforms. Like, Civ Six is on Epic, and I believe it's also on Good Old Games or GOG or whatever they're calling themselves now. Yeah, and I think it's it's also on the PlayStation Store and the... Nintendo Store and the Xbox Store and the uh, which, as far as I know, do not have launchers. (laughs) But uh, according to reports, the game doesn't work on any of those platforms anyway. So who cares? Because there's so many bugs. Which goes back to the original thing: we don't care about your launcher. Give us bug fix. Oh, they just did. They just bug fixed the launcher. Yeah. Malicious compliance. (laughs) (laughs) You got your bug fix. Yeah, well, I don't think we're going to have too many people arguing in favor of the launcher here. <laughs> Not ultimately, and I would like to see the game be improved more, yes. So anything else to cover on uh, 2K's bug-fixing practices? If not, I will take us onwards. To something old slash new. Mostly old, but maybe one thing new, at least for me. Uh, six new ways to play Civ Six. You skipped one. I did. Yep. Oh, you're right. <laughs> or rather, <laughs> like somehow my eyes transposed and I stole uh, Jason's topic. Whoops. <laughs> oh yeah. By the way, I will introduce that topic since uh, I don't introduce. To- no, never mind. Never mind. Well, okay. Spoilers for later. Uh, can yeah. you play Civilization Six on Steam Deck. Is uh, this one? Well, I didn't prep this one. Oops. <laughs> Whoops. I can answer the question for you. The answer is yes. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's uh, an- only one day I can get, uh, what's it? Uh, Elden Scrolls Five to work on a platform I can play it. Yeah, I, I came across the uh, the article about whether or not it works on the Steam Deck on uh, .esports.com, and it's kind of funny that I th- the, the basically the answer is just yes, and they say it works. You don't have to do anything. They also spend several paragraphs talking about how the game is also available on Epic and how you can play it on Epic, and they spend more time talking about getting the game to play on Epic than on anything about the Steam Deck or Steam. So It's the Steam Deck! Why would you use the Epic launcher on the Steam Deck? Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Whatever. They, I guess they just gotta fill up so many words. Uh, I guess you gotta write enough words to let them know that you've been there, but... But yeah... And- as I recall, I read that article and it was like, if you want to use the Epic Launcher, you've got to install Windows and overwrite the firmware. And the only way you can do that is if you uh, give a bunch of uh, of uh, very poorly written and quite contradictory uh, details on how you would do that. Also, NVIDIA and AMD haven't produced drivers for Windows on the steam deck so it might just brick your console but you should totally do this if you own it own uh civ on epic like yeah Yeah, it's totally the point of buying a steam deck to brick it so you could play stuff off of epic of course i mean if you hey if you need to hit a certain word count sometimes you just write things i I did this in college you see i learned how to do that there 
If you need two pages and you only have one page worth of material, it's not like you cannot still write two pages. Oh, it's like that business course where I basically regurgitated the textbook and I was told, hey, plus, you have a great understanding of the topic. What? Yeah. But long story short, yes, uh, Civ 6 apparently plays perfectly fine on a Steam Deck. So if you have a Steam Deck or you have a Civ playing friend who has a Steam Deck, uh, the game is playable. And unlike with other consoles, uh, you don't have to rebuy the game. If it's already in your Steam library, it'll work. I don't know anyone who has a Steam Deck. I have pre-ordered one. Oh, did you ever actually get your pre-order? I have another friend who did try getting a pre-order, but I guess he was, like, late about actually filling it out and, like, missed his turn. Well, um, they are, they're coming in waves. Mine is second wave, which is, like, June, I think. Let well, me check. When you get it, you'll have to give us a full review of the Steam Deck and also of playing Civ on the Steam Deck. I mean, I already played Civ on the, um... Switch, which is probably the same experience. Yeah, I would imagine it's probably very, very similar. Can you just plug in a keyboard and mouse to the Steam Deck? I don't know. And if so, I wonder if there's a way to play games in, like, PC mode, where it uses the PC inputs and UIs instead of the, like... I'm assuming the Steam Deck version of Civ is going to use, like, the console UI, but I wonder if you can force it... Probably. I wonder if you can force it to use the PC UI and controls if you just plug in a keyboard and mouse. That should work, but who knows if it will. I'm trying to look at the a picture of the thing now to see if there's any ports that would allow you to plug those things in, even. Well, like, the Steam Deck page has totally disappeared from the Steam store, so I um, I don't know what that means, but... Yeah, it doesn't look like you're plugging in a keyboard and mouse to this offhand, but I might be mistaken. There are the three models. Uh, let's see if I can get a, if I can see a picture. The model I'm sure I'm seeing on their advertising page does not have ports <laughs> for that. Plenty of power. It's expansion. like one mini USB, uh, one thing that looks like for headphones, and not a lot else. One USB-C. Hmm, which uh, is not enough for both a keyboard and a mouse unless they are all going through one plug or one dongle. I don't yeah, and I'd know be surprised if you could bring that. that on the thing. It's it, the, for, the full phrasing here is... USB-C with DisplayPort 1.4, alt mode support up to 8K at 60Hz or 4K at 120Hz, USB 3.2 Gen 2Y. That's a mouthful. Apparently what I have seen of the Steam Deck is that it's very modular except the battery is hard to take out, which is really silly. Hmm. Because the battery is the thing you're probably most likely to, you know, want to replace. When you say modular, you're talking about, like, what, like, the hard drive and RAM can be replaced, but not the battery, apparently? Like, like if you are repairing the device, it's pretty easy to replace any most of the stuff, except the battery is glued in. Huh. Glued and that's, in? Yeah, I don't understand that. I'm a little surprised the specs are this good for a handheld, but I haven't been following the handheld stuff in ages, so maybe this is normal now. Well, it's head and shoulders above the Switch. Yeah. Well, Nintendo never really aims for, like, super powerful hardware to begin with, so the yeah, Switch, the Switch probably could have been far more powerful than they actually made it, but they just choose not to even target that. It's why I get frame frame rate lag when I'm playing Pokemon, which I don't know why that is. They're not that complicated. Yeah, the Pokemon games do not tend to be very graphically intense either, so that does surprise me. It's not as bad as it used to be on the 3DS, though, because the 3DS, they would have to render it with the 3D stuff, and that would really slow it down. But anyway, Steam Deck is coming. It's already been released in some places for some people. 
Yeah, some people have it and are potentially already playing Civ Six on it. Who knows? Oh, my! Uh, the second wave is coming on uh, July to September. So that's not too far away. Well, if you are looking for new ways to play Civilization VI on your eventual Steam Deck, uh, PC Games N has you covered, as they have a new article uh, titled Six, way- Six New Ways to Play Civilization VI, uh, which is basically saying, yeah, we've all been playing this game for years, we're all used to the you know basic uh, premise of just starting a game with a new civilization, and now that content has dried up, we need some new and interesting ways to try to shake up the gameplay experience. So they suggest six ways to do so. Uh, And a lot of these are probably things that a lot of Civ players have already done, but we'll go through them anyway. Uh, The first one is to try a one-city challenge. Uh, I don't know if I've ever... This is an old classic. (laughs) Yeah, and honestly, I don't know if I've ever done that outside of, like, playing as Venice in Civ Five. Man, people are doing this in Civ Three at least... Yeah, I, I'm always I always like the games for the empire building, you know, aspect. So like, just having one city is like completely contrary to how I like to play the games anyway. But yeah, that's uh, it's definitely a difficult challenge. One of the most difficult challenges in a Civ game is to just win with just one city. Oh uh, wait a minute! The rule for one t- one city challenge is that you can never end your turn with a second city. But the act of triggering a domination victory immediately ends the game. Therefore, you can settle your city on the turn you win, or second city on the turn you win, and not lose. What? You would have to take all of the capitals at the same time. Yeah, and Civ Six doesn't have any mechanics for like having client cities, really. So, like, it, oh, it's you not would, you would capture every every enemy capital on the same turn. Yeah. Which on like a four player, five player map would be not too bad, even on Deity, but on like a seventeen player map would be awful. So by playing that in Civ Six would be awful generally, so it's fine. So if I'm understanding uh this rule correctly, uh you just have to not end your turn with more than one city. So hypothetically you could found a city and then like I don't know, maybe buy stuff in it, like units or whatever, and then raise the city before the end of the turn, and that's considered think you can raise your own city. Yeah, maybe you could sell it, but that's... Uh, I'm not, not sure you can even sell cities anymore. Oh, that's true. I haven't tried. But yeah, like you don't need to do that much special, uh, generally, with this type of thing. Uh, people win one-city challenges all the time throughout this history. Uh, straight from Civ 3 until now. Or even with no city at all. Yeah, well, that's true. We covered that earlier. That's true, yeah. They probably haven't even fixed that yet. But yeah, I mean, you can get at least passable science. You can certainly feel the military good enough to beat the AI, especially as it gains experience and you're swapping them into armies uh, as you progress down the culture tree. And uh, yeah, after, at that point, there's not really a whole lot stopping you other than the inconvenience of having to capture multiple capitals at once. Or you could just out-tech the AI, which on a lot of difficulties will actually be trivial. Uh, it might be a little harder on Deity. I don't know if anyone's done a one-city challenge science Deity. I would believe it's possible, but I would need to see it. It's hard for me to imagine that you could even generate enough science to remain competitive with just one city. Yeah, there's usually methods. <laughs> I mean, I know in Civ V, uh, it was doable with the uh, the National College or whatever, because that's a massive boost to your 
um, your science, but I don't, I don't know if there's a comparable strategy in Civ Six. Well, if someone got creative enough with spies or suppressed uh, AI from actually launching any ships by like you know, you know knocking theirs down all the time or whatever. I could, there's there's a few ways I can at least think of offhand already, and you know I haven't even like looked into optimizing one city challenge in Civ Six. But I would be very surprised ultimately if it's not possible. Especially since uh, domination is possible. If domination is possible, then space probably is too. Because if you go through most of the steps required for domination, and then just like burn every city that isn't a capital, I, I don't see how the AI is launching a ship. Because <laughs> you could just sit there and not take the cities, and they can't work their tiles, and they can't repair the things you pillaged. Yeah, so you have all the time in the world. Then I, I guess you you will know you you have until the score victory triggers. I don't think that'll be much of a problem. I don't either. It'd be slow, but not that slow. Oh, there's a picture of uh, Georgia here, so I guess the next one is unpopular play, unpopular leader. Yeah. yeah. Again, this is not new at all. Yeah, I mean, and this if... might be another one of those gotta reach a word count things. I mean, these are ideas. Like, if somebody's new to the series, uh, all this is is fine. Like, and if somebody hasn't really like played a lot, I could see this being a good list. And of course, uh, other than this isn't actually new, this has also been done since Civ 3. And the only reason it hasn't been done prior to that is that there was no difference between leaders prior to Civ 3, other than their name. And of course, uh, poor Tamar and Georgia are one of the, you know, favorite whipping civs of uh, Civilization 6. Yeah. Only 1.4 players have have won the game as as her, apparently. 1.4%. Yeah, 1.4 players. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I only count as 0. 0.4 of a player. Oh, really? Because I'm only like 0. 0.2 of a player, so I guess we have uh, 0. We have, like, what, we have other people out there who are fractional that? players. I didn't think uh, Lataro was that bad, though. Huh? Apparently, people don't like Lataro very much either. Well, he he's the one who gets the bonus against uh, Golden Age civs, right? Yeah, so it's it's one of those things where it's just outside your control whether or not you ever get to use the ability. Well, that and the AI on lower difficulties never gets Golden Ages, so... Yeah, I was going to say, if you were trying to play at higher difficulties or even up to, to deity level, that that might actually be helpful because they're going to be setting off Golden Ages all around you and you could just go completely ham on them. It's been a while since I've done it, but I don't remember it being that bad with them spamming Golden Ages. But you can win militarily easily yeah. with any generic civ like you could have no abilities yeah you're gonna have you're gonna have more opportunities maybe to use lataro's uh ability than you would against a lower level ai yeah for sure and possibly also in multiplayer yes <laughs> no yeah taking these to multiplayer is a different uh different can of worms yeah at that point you're flexing or at least trying to uh if you actually win then you're flexing Next up is to win with self-imposed restrictions. Let's see, do they give any examples? Uh, don't build any campuses or don't build any theater squares. So you can, yeah, limit which infrastructure you build. Uh, doing all the wonders or doing none of the wonders. Uh, you know, things like that. Um, again, nothing terribly new here. This was actually a lot of fun. Uh, back in the Civ 4 days, uh, CFC poster Mad Scientist would run a roleplay challenge series where he would come up with restrictions uh, specific to a Civ leader. And, you know, we, we did everything from Julian Assange to, like, you know, Warmonger Gandhi to you know, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, yeah, it definitely made the games more interesting because uh, you really learn to play around with mechanics that you might not otherwise. 
It's totally not the Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup cosplay challenge. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a very similar uh, con- conceptual thing to that. Uh, I'm a regular in that series, which is why Candace brings it up. But that's a little bit less Civ-like and a little bit more Rogue-like. The Pizza Party Achievement? That's one. F- I actually have that one. It's fun to go for. Yeah, the other recommendation is to go for uh, specific achievements. Uh, I don't think I have a whole lot of those weird gimmicky achievements for Civilization VI. Yes, a lot of them are really weird, and you have to do very, very specific things to get them. Activate Leonardo da Vinci in the city of New York with great works of Michelangelo and Donatello housed there, while the city also has a sewer. And apparently poor Raphael does not make the cut. Because I don't think he's in the game. Yeah, too moody, you know. Yeah. Takes right, well, so much damage, too. Here's a multiplayer suggestion for us. Uh, play a multiplayer game where every player is the same leader. Well, it's fair, you? And uh, the sample picture that they give is four uh, coupes. So I'm imagining here uh, a, a spiffing Brit video of a multiplayer game where every player is coupe and nobody builds any cities at all and they all try to win. Oh my gosh. There's a challenge for you. That sounds like the most boring game of Civ ever. Probably would be, you're right. Eventually, somebody's willpower would overcome the remaining player's willpower, and they would just vote them winner. And they would just build a city and just instantly be the winner. Or, more likely, people would just quit. (laughs) In the video version, we'll have the, the, the graphic card of whatever hours later. On the uh, uh, the one thing about that is, uh, in a multiplayer game, at least you would know that the other players might be actively looking to try to kill your settler. The uh, AIs aren't going to know to go looking for it, but the human players would. So you would at the very least have to defend your uh, starting settler, because if you lose that, I think it is game over. Oh, it'd be like nope. that um, King Hunt. It's not game, game over until both series units are dead. Oh, really? Yeah, you have to lose the warrior too? Series. Yep. Where like no matter how much your your nation is built up in that game, yeah, in the king hunt thing, like if your king unit is killed, you all your stuff just gets deleted and you lose. The regicide mode in Civ Three. Yeah. Oh yeah, they have that in Civ as well. They have that in the Age of Empire series. That's pretty. It was hilarious. in Civ Three the last time. Yeah, Civ Three had a lot of interesting game modes that Civ Four and Five and Six have. That would certainly also, speed up domination victories in the later games. That's for sure. Also, can I trade contact with the Inca? Contact, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. You still trade contact. Although you still could back when map trades were. Like in Civ 4, if you traded maps, you basically traded contact. Because once you saw them, you you saw them. That that was that. And speaking of potentially boring ways to play the game, uh, PC Games N's next tip is to win without having a military. Uh, I do not see Phil winning this victory ever. I have, actually, but in Civ 4. Because, uh, like, it, it is boring if the turns don't roll quickly. So, like, it's just been unplayable for me to attempt such things in modern Civ. But you can do it. Uh, According to this article, uh, somebody's done it on Deity, so... Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. You just uh, you manipulate your deploy with AI so it doesn't attack you. and As long as you have some way of handling barbs or you just settle them out before they're a thing at all, yeah, like uh, you're playing an island map or whatever, you're fine. Oh, wait, yeah, no, it's even easier against barbs in the modern saves. I haven't tried this in modern saves. Yeah, because your uh, cities four. can actually defend themselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah, gosh, how do you... Do, I mean, do you have to disable barbs in Civ Four to even make that possible? You can build a Great Wall. They can't, barbs can't enter your borders with Great Wall. There's uh. also... 
in a lot of maps, it's technically possible to do it without uh, if you use like scouts, if scouts don't count as military, for example, because there are rules dictating where barb units and cities are allowed to spawn within uh, proximity of other units. So it is possible on a lot of maps to block barbarians from spawning on you. But in most practical cases, you would just build the Great Wall, and then you're good. Yeah, you just have to survive long enough to do that. You can, though, because the barbs are restricted from entering your city borders in that game uh, until a certain point. The higher the difficulty, the faster that is. But even on Deity, if you if you rush for Great Wall, you will get it before barbs enter. Although, the AI might beat you to it, because the AI bonuses on Deity are crazy in Civ 4. And if I remember correctly, the Great Wall in Civ 4 is available way earlier than it is in the later games. Is it available yeah. with masonry? Masonry, yes. Yeah, as opposed to being a medieval... Uh, wonder like it is in Civ 5 and Civ 6. It's like a practically an ancient wonder. Yeah, it is outright an ancient wonder in Civ 4. So that's how people would do it then. Unless you just turn barbs off, of course. <laughs> Which would also be a way to approach that. I mean, really, most of the challenge to winning without a military is your diplomacy with the AI rather than... At least you don't have to worry about uh, them getting mad at you for having troops near their borders. That's true, although uh, the AIs that care about the size of your military or building enough horse units or whatever, they're, they're not going to like you. Also, does Navy count? Lol. I assume Navy is military, yes. Yeah, well, some people might not say that, but yeah, I would I would assume that it counts, yes. I don't know. I mean, if you're not counting scouts, then I, I guess anything is, is open to uh, interpretation. Oh, yeah. They, uh, in, this, in the article, they talk about people winning uh, domination this way, using uh, loyalty. And there was something similar done in Civ Four. Actually, one of the Mad Scientist games was uh, a game where you, you the only way you could take cities was via culture flipping. So there's some uh, familiar ideas here. But that actually was an interesting challenge. And loyalty in Civ Six is quite different from uh, culture in Civ Four. So uh, th- this would be a fun thing to play around with if you haven't previously. And it would certainly give you a better grasp of the loyalty system. And then the sixth and final suggestion uh, for new ways to play Civilization VI is perhaps the most obvious one, which is to just try out the actual game modes that Firaxis put into the game. And, uh, of course, it is new. Yeah. Uh, And, of course, it lists them all out. I don't know if we need to go through what all of them are. We've talked about all of these in the past. Um, I don't think so. But, yeah. Other options include the scenarios from the DLC. That's true. There are a handful of those as well. And then uh, the the thing about the game modes, too, is you can also, you know, mix and match them. So there not only is there each of the game modes on their own, but there's also the different permutations and combinations of game modes, which uh, well, could actually add up to a lot of potential variability. Some of them are broken. Yeah, some of them don't work properly with uh, each other, which is, uh, you know, goes back to the first topic of it would be nice to get bug fixes for the actual game instead of just updates for the launcher. Agree. <laughs> but yeah, that, those are PC games and suggestions. I don't know if, if we have any other suggestions on fun new ways to play Civ Six ourselves, but that's what they Find recommend. A friend. Yeah, try multiplayer. Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot of people who play Civ in multiplayer, so. That's a new thing for lots of people. Don't go into public lobbies. You will be disappointed. <laughs> well, it depends on what you expect to get out of them. I generally assume that that's going to be the case with any game I play. Yeah, yeah but if you're public- looking for a dumpster fire, there are a few better places you could go than public lobbies. Yeah, I've been in enough over the years. I've been enough, and a lot of other people have been in enough over the years to go, 
Yeah, it's not going to be pretty. People are going to be name calling. Uh, da, da, da. Which could find friends. Got friends who play Civ, which is what this next video thing was about. It's on the channel's called Worst Premade Ever. And they hit the uh, video that's all your Civ multi multiplayer pain in one video. And like, yeah, this is what multiplayer is like. Yes. I mean, it's funny. It's just like not funny when you're the person that gets, you know, stuck on a one hex island, for example. I think they were funnier than we were on Turncast. <laughs> I know. I was thinking, hmm. Well, they also have the benefit of having like edited all of the funniest and most clever bits yes. into like one six minute video as opposed to yeah, just. If you went back through the old Turncast episodes and you took out like the, the top 10 funniest moments we had, yeah, we would sound this funny too. And the, I, this is over also at least several games because they, they talk about certain game situations, which, you know, are, are kind of mutually exclusive with one another. So it's also not just one single game that they're pulling all this from. Yeah. Top comment. What's your kink? Building the great library before Jake and then watching him throw a fit. I totally haven't done that in a game. <clears throat> totally haven't whipped. I thought it was the Sistine Chapel. Chapel. Yeah, it wasn't the Great Library, it was the Sistine Chapel, but I can relate. No, no, multiple of us have whipped the Great Library in uh, co-op multiplayer as well. Quote-unquote co-op. <laughs> That's happened too. And we do have some of the commentary that gets edited out, which is, uh, it would be uh, not PG-13 rated, let's put it that way, like some of the ones in here. <laughs> I think my favorite comment in this video was somebody has to get up for a few minutes to go to the bathroom and he comes back and is all like, oh, nature called. And everyone else was like, no, nature didn't call. It had a battering ram. Because <laughs> <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> oh, we did that in Dan once. Uh, he went up to to do something. I don't know if it was that or whatever. But he, was, he went AFK. And when he came back, there was like three or four AIs at war with him. <laughs> I was like, you stayed a little too long. People started bribing the AI. Yeah, it would be great if you press the unturn button. Yeah, it's right there in the corner. Big flashy button. Just, just, it, it was kind of nice to see Civ Five again, actually. Yeah, that's the thing too. Yeah, this was all Civ Five, which I uh, haven't looked at it's for a quite while. a while. Still, a lot of people playing it though that never migrated to Civ Six. So you know. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in, in fact, six close to strictly superior. Most of uh, most of my personal friends who play Civilization uh, never uh, moved on from Civ Five to Civ Six, which is one of the reasons that I never got to play any multiplayer in Civ Six because all the friends that I know who you know uh, were Civ fans were all still playing Civ Five. Some of them didn't even buy Civ Six. I tried to convince them to check it out, especially after the expansions, but. They just wouldn't do it. Yeah, well, sometimes, sometimes when you get new versions on games, it's hard to leave it because like a game's out for like five or six years before the next one comes along and this can be strategy or anything else. But a lot of ones will get a big mod scene built up around it and you're so used to all the things you get from the mods and then you have to go back to the basic version. It's kind of like, uh... Yeah, for sure. Especially with today's brilliant UI design. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Civ Six isn't that bad, except for the lack of useful tools. The look and feel isn't bad. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, we discussed it before. Like, there's a lot of information buried way down. It's like, did I have a more accessible version of that? You know, come on. I do feel I like a... Civ Six puts more information like on the main screen though than Civ Five did for sure. Yeah. 
Can I have a, de- a secretary of state that shows up shows up when people are trying to ask me if they want me to make deals so I can see if it's going to affect something else? No. no only the main UI, like just looking at the game with the options you have to display things, is actually pretty good. The problem is stuff like Candace is describing or the number of inputs it takes to do things rather than that. Or like when we were applying policies, how is this going to change my... Uh various things like is this going to be more faith or less faith is it going to affect my goals is it going to affect my science and i think there's at least one mod that puts it right there on the card for you what's this going to do yeah that would certainly be nice and there's no reason not to do it like to ask players to go and like count up their stuff and then apply all the multipliers just to know what the effects of their policy is like that's ridiculous yeah and the whole point of playing something like this in video game form as opposed to playing a actual board game is uh, because you're expecting the computer to do all of that stuff for you. When you start expecting the player to start doing all of that stuff, then, I mean, you might as well just go back to playing board games. We can't promise if you play a multiplayer, it's going to be a wall-to-wall as funny as the video is, but you're going to have some funny moments like this. If you're playing with your actual friends and not just random. Okay, well, picking up on a topic that we uh, discussed uh, in our last recording, uh, I had posted a while back a set of retrospective uh, blog posts and uh, video essays about uh, Civilization VI, now that we assume that Fraxis is done with it. And we already talked about the top ten list of good ideas that were put into the game. So the second retrospective is, of course, top ten bad ideas. And uh, we just thought we'd go over a few of these and uh, discuss them. Uh, so my number 10 was uh, Privateers. Uh, not a big fan of the way Privateers have worked in Civ Five and in Civ Six. Uh, I feel like they're basically just naval reconnaissance units. Uh, I really liked how in Civ Four they had hidden nationality and you could actually use them to harass uh, rival civilizations uh, shipping without necessarily having to be at war with those civilizations. And I feel like having something like that in Civ Five and Civ Six, especially with the new trade route mechanics where the traders actually move along the map, would give a much greater incentive to actually build and use navies because you would not only have to protect those uh, trader units from barbarians, but you would also have to tr- uh, protect them from other Civ's uh, privateers, uh, which I think would lead to lots more use of navies in the mid and late game. Yeah. I think that would be fun. And they could also have more than just one ship type capable of privateering. Because that was the the main detraction in the Civ age, was just they had such a short window before frigates came online and just dumpstered them. Yeah, once frigates were there, like, privateers were just would just get owned. Unless you had, like, maybe one that was super well promoted and that could actually stand up to a, a frigate. But, of course, with the way that Civ you know, combat mechanics worked, all it would take is, like, one bad die roll and that poor privateer is gone or two frigates because you're almost certainly still going to take damage against like a combat one frigate even if you have combat five privateer and actually stronger doesn't matter because you're going to have like you know less than half your health left and then another frigate's going to roll up and just blow you to pieces yeah ironically though i still love privateers in civ 6 uh the ability to do the coastal raids is really cool especially at that period in the game where they become unlocked because there's lots of like coastal barbarian outposts on those you know isolated like islands and stuff all over the map and just scouring the mm-hmm. map with your privateers for them is a really good way to make a lot of gold 
and also to uh, accumulate some experience so that when you actually do get into a war with something, hopefully those privateers are a little bit more powerful and uh, useful. So, like, they're not trash units by any stretch of the imagination, but I just, I feel like they don't fill the historic niche that pirates and privateers actually filled in real life, and I think that Civ Five and Civ Six's mechanics actually allow for that niche to be an interesting element of gameplay, and they just haven't done it. So number nine is that the World Congress uh, feels completely arbitrary. Uh, unlike Civ Five, we don't get to actually choose what resolutions get proposed. Like, there's no leader, like, picking things. It just all feels kind of random, so it's really hard to get anything in the World Congress to, like, actually work with how you want to, you know, play the game on any sort of strategic level because you just don't have any control over what's going to come up in the World Congress other than, like, the occasional, like, disaster relief resolutions and stuff like that. That's right. Let me troll the field by bringing up the standing army tax again. <laughs> yeah, because it, it's just picking it randomly. I, I wish the game had a way to look at conditions to figure out that if there's a bunch of wars going on, this is a great time to put up the thing about like if you wanted the 50% off of gold or production or whatever faith for buying units or something like that, not when everybody's at peace, then throw up one of like the world's fair or something like that. Yeah. Like the emergencies and stuff like that, I think work fine. Those are, those are okay. Like I like those, those are, you know, context sensitive at least, but yeah, like the world Congress just feels like a total crapshoot in Civ six. And it's one of the frustrating things where like Civ five had a model where like it worked like, this is a perfectly adequate way of doing it. Like, why would you change it for the sake of changing it? Uh, I, I just, I don't really understand what Firaxis's reasoning or motivation was for making the World Congress work that way in Civ Six, other than just to be different from Civ Five. Uh, I can't if, get Conqueror's bad fur day out of my head when I hear the phrase context-sensitive, lol. <laughs> Sorry, a bit random there, but... So my number eight uh, bad idea is that I feel like uh, some leader and civilization abilities are, let's say, inelegant. Uh, some of them are very long, very wordy. They do a lot of different things. Uh, it's kind of hard to keep track of. And um, a-, a lot of times when I just see this wall of text for leader and civ and u- unique abilities... I just kind of, like, get, eh, I, I don't really know. This doesn't necessarily feel like it's really tightly themed. I, I'm just not really encouraged to play with this civilization. Uh, for example, I even have a screenshot um, on the, the blog post here of uh, uh, Pachacuti and the Inca. Uh, like, there's so much text on all of his unique stuff that it doesn't even fit on the screen. And you can't even scroll to read all of it because if you move the mouse cursor off of his little, you know, character icon, all that text goes away. So, uh, yeah, like, eh, maybe not be so wordy for, you know, Civ 7, hopefully. Hopefully Civ 7 will have more focused, more elegant leader and uh, civilization abilities. I don't know if anyone else feels the same way. Yeah, I mean, I do get a bit of the, like, League of Legends, you know, new hero feel or whatever, where... It, it becomes a pain to like factor in all the, the crap for each. Yeah, and and more unique to my circumstances uh, as someone who does try to write like strategy guides for a lot of these civilizations and leaders. When like the leader ability is like five or six different things, it makes writing those guides a heck of a lot more complicated than it was in Civ Five, where like each each leader did like one thing, like it was a one sentence 
ability, maybe two sentences for some of the more complicated leaders. Uh, it was a heck of a lot easier to write guides for those than it is to write guides for some of these Civ Six leaders. Now, there's a balance to be had here, right? Because this does add variety of gameplay depending on the Civ you choose, which was not the case in earlier Civ games, especially like before Civ Four. But even Civ Four had less variety between Civs than like Civ Six does. Um, it's one of the things I would put in the favor of the newer titles. So there's a balance to be had here. I I don't think you need a wall of text, um, but at the same time, I I do like that the Civs play differently. I like having the abilities. I just wish that was a more there was a more succinct version of like that whole list for Pachacuti, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, well, this could just be written better too. Like <laughs> even if the mechanics are identical, like this is not this is not necessary. Yeah, some of it is is the actual writing and not necessarily the abilities or mechanics themselves, that's for sure. And Pachacuti is not the only offender in this area. There are quite a few. Uh, Canada and I think Australia come to mind where they have like five different improvements or, you know, terrain types that get boosted. And yeah, they also similarly have, you know, several sentence paragraphs describing their abilities. Uh, Canada, at least, is pretty focused uh, all of it's about like settling in cold, you know, parts of the map, tundra. So at least it's focused and streamlined, but just very wordy. Uh, number seven on this list is actually kind of, you know, paradoxically an item that appears also on the top 10 good ideas, and that is uh, leader agendas. Except in this case, instead of talking about how it's good on paper to have civilizations that. Uh, or leaders whose AIs are, like, custom-tailored to use their, like, unique abilities and stuff. Uh, In actual practice, it leads to some, like, silly and erratic behavior that really makes these AIs feel more robotic and less like actual people who know what the heck they're doing. Uh, Knowing the leader's agendas allows you to, like, very easily, in certain cases, manipulate them, and in some cases, it even causes them to act contrary to their best interests uh one of the examples that i always go to is like harold of norway who likes civilizations who have a powerful navy uh but of course if you're not already on friendly terms with them that means that that is potentially an enemy navy and uh that's gonna get used against him but then like suddenly he likes you and becomes less hostile towards you and, you know, isn't thinking about declaring war on you anymore, which just makes it easier for you to turn that navy against him. Uh, this is a situation where I really feel like Beyond Earth, uh, Rising Tides, um, fear and respect mechanic uh, would have definitely improved the situation. Uh, number six on my list is the restrictive great work theming. Uh, I was very disappointed in Civ Six that there is only one way to theme great works, and that is different eras and different civilizations. I much preferred how Civ Five you could actually make museums with like different themes. Like you could have all classical artifacts, and you would have a museum of classical antiquity, or you could have uh, all artifacts from a conquered rival, and you would have a museum of you know specific to that you know, historic civilization that no longer exists anymore. And I, I thought that was, like, it, it mechanically didn't do anything different, but it was it was a nice little bit of flavor that I really miss, and I, I just don't think Civilization Six's great work theming works as well. I always forget this exists, but yeah, I agree. Well, I think that's part of the reason, because it, it's so much harder now in Civ Six to get some of these theming bonuses because the criteria are so strict, especially with the works of art, where, like, you have whatever Civ builds theater squares early in the game, like, kind of monopolizes all of them. 
uh, and it's difficult to just get more than one artist to build great works in your cities. Yeah, because in real life we have museums that are themed around even just like one item. Like there's uh, museums that are just all automobiles or all, uh, what else am I thinking of? There were more examples in my head and they just went right out the window. Hey, maybe there's a, there's probably a museum of windows somewhere, you know? I, I live in Las Vegas and we have a lot of really unique niche museums. There is the Neon Museum uh, downtown somewhere which is all just like the old like neon signs and marquees from old oh, las vegas yeah, it's kind of like graveyardish kind of thing but it's kind of it, all right there. and then we also have the mob museum which is you know just a museum about organized crime and the policing of said organized crime and you know how it specifically influenced and shaped the history and culture of las vegas you don't find that in too many cities nope. cowboy museums find those a lot here in texas <laughs> oh i bet uh, and also, as a little bit of an aside, um, I really wish that Civ would have uh, natural history museums. I really wish that there was, like, a paleontology uh, tech or civic that lets you dig up fossils and display them in natural history museums. Especially since the actual graphic for the museums in Civilization VI includes a dinosaur skeleton outside in the courtyard. Uh, yet the game does not actually let us dig up dinosaur bones. I think that's a huge shame. We want to go all Jurassic Park, dang it. That's right, yeah. We should have advanced technologies that let us uh, clone woolly mammoths and let them run amok. Uh, mounted units. Woolly mammoth mounted units. Ooh. As a future era uh, unit. There we go. Uh, number five on my list is how trade routes don't provide as many reciprocal benefits early in the game. Uh, in Civ Five, right from the start of the game, if you sent a trade route to another player... Uh, they would also get, like, at least one or two gold. So there was always this kind of trade-off between, yeah, I'm getting stuff, but I'm also potentially giving stuff to a rival, which made for a lot of interesting decisions early in the game in Civilization V when a lot of those, you know, even small amounts of extra yield have a big snowballing effect. And you just don't have to worry about that so much in Civilization VI because uh, until a lot of um, districts come online, you don't get two-way bonuses from trade routes. It's just all the yields go to the uh, the player who sent the trade route. And in fact, I'm not even sure if Civ Six's UI tells you what the other city would get from trade routes when you're trying to send the trade routes. You have to like send it and then go into the trade overview screen, and that's where it shows you which city gets what. So also kind of confusing in the UI. Uh, number four on my list is that uh, roads kind of suck in Civ Six, at least in my opinion. Uh, you don't really get any movement benefit from them until I think like the Renaissance, because the earlier roads basically just uh, remove the rough terrain penalties, and you don't actually get an increase in movement until later in the game. But then on top of that, like just a fundamental problem that roads have had since Civ Five unstacked armies is they're just not very practical for moving large armies which is like kind of the exact opposite of how they work in real life because you can't put the whole army on the road at once uh unless you have just a road on every tile which you know civ 5 made you pay maintenance for and actively discouraged civ 6 at least doesn't do that but you don't have control over where you put the roads so it's a lot harder to put roads on more tiles in civ 6 than it was in civ 5 yeah, they really. It would really be nice to have that, that some more agency on the logistics side, or like have it be sensible relative to the actual design of the armies. I agree. 
Yeah, I mean, there's the military engineers, and they actually updated the game so that those come online earlier in the game than they used to. Like, I think they used to be, like, a late Renaissance or early industrial unit, and now it's, like, late medieval or early Renaissance. Uh, But even then, like, they only have, like, two charges. So it's still prohibitively expensive to build a robust road network with military engineers. Especially considering what they do, uh, which is not much in late game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's not it's just not worth doing. I mean, unless you just have a city somewhere that has nothing to do but pump out military engineers, but even then, like they have to it has to be doing them every few turns. And if you have a city that can pump out a military engineer every few turns, you're probably much better off having that city build something else, even if it's just like building gold. More military and it's movement issue isn't as much when you're surrounding the enemy city. Yeah, and I don't really know of any good way to solve that problem while still maintaining the one unit per tile uh, rule. Like, I think the best thing I can think of is to maybe do something like what uh, Humankind and Endless Legend do, which is where you can stack units into armies during peacetime and have them all move as one and then unstack them when you actually fight battles. Uh, Maybe that's a workable compromise. Like, it seems to work well enough in Humankind, so... What happens on declaration, though? You would have your units get, like, scattered. Uh, The way it works in Humankind is that the armies remain stacked together until they meet an enemy army or city in the field, and then they unstack. And then you have a deployment round, kind of similar to if you've ever played Total War. When you start a real-time battle in Total War, you deploy your units on the, the map. So they do something similar to that. And then there are three rounds of combat within the one campaign turn. And if the combat is not resolved within those three turns, then the combat rolls over to the next campaign turn. That's how it works in Humankind. And I I think it works pretty well. Uh, There's also, when you you battle in the field, uh, there specifically is, like, the defender has, like, a little flag uh, on one of the tiles. And if the attacker captures that flag and holds it for an entire turn, uh, that ends the battle and the defender loses. So you don't have to wipe out their units. You can also capture their flag. So definitely something for Firaxis to look at for potential future Civilization games. Yeah, and just the, the basic one unit per tile that we're getting to this point could definitely be improved. Uh, so number three on my list is kind of another thing that showed up on both lists, and this is that uh, climate change does not actually represent an existential threat within the game. Uh, in a lot of games, you can basically just ignore it because you're probably already late enough into a game and close enough to a victory that you can just power through without actually addressing climate change. Uh, there's none of the victory conditions actually require that the climate be stabilized. So, like, you can basically win but be presiding over a barren desert wasteland full of natural disasters. Uh... Which, what greater win could there be? <laughs> yeah, I, I know, right? Like, I'm happy that Civilization VI takes it, like, so seriously as a gameplay mechanic, because in a lot of passive games, it's just been an afterthought. Like, oh, it just generates some pollution on a tile or whatever, and then you just clean it up with some workers and no big deal. Like, I, I like that it's actually a problem and everybody is encouraged to deal with it, but it, it kind of is disappointing to me that, like I said, you can just power through and win the game without actually having to do anything about it. Yeah, because even the original Civ had uh, desert, desert, ugh, desertification in there. If you let the pollution build up for too much in that it had an indicator for that, and you left it there for a few turns, you'd get a whole swath of tiles that got became desert. 
You know, so you got punished for ignoring it. And you don't really get punished so much for ignoring this. A little bit, but not a lot. Yeah, and I'll acknowledge that it's kind of a tricky thing to do well, uh, because you don't want it to be so strict mm-hmm. and punitive that players just never industrialize to begin with, because they would just be completely crippling themselves later in the game. Uh, and, like, the fact that it you know, realistically is something that doesn't become a problem until later in the game when industrialization becomes unlocked means like you can't really do much with climate change earlier in the game to make it more of a snowballing problem. Uh, so, but the one idea that I came up with that I think Fraxis could maybe try in a future game is, uh, you know, one idea would be to prevent any sieve from winning the game as long as the climate has not been stabilized. You know, that would kind of be the the very brute force way of trying to make players have to deal with it, or at least make it like a victory condition. Like, I don't know, maybe the science victory requires you to actually like build the technologies for carbon recapture and stabilize the climate, or, you or maybe still launch the exoplanet mission or mission to Mars or whatever. But you gotta at least get things stabilized. Yeah, and the diplomatic victory would also be a good candidate for, hey, Mm. we should probably stabilize this global climate thing before we (laughs) declare ourselves winners of of the world. Um, So that's one way to do it. Uh, But, you know, that also leads to problems of then, you know, losing players just ramp up their carbon emissions to prevent other players from winning the game and yeah there's a lot of trolley things that players can do for that so the other idea that i came up with is that maybe for future games they can make the exact effects and severity of climate change like unknown until it actually starts to happen in game because this would more closely resemble how it worked in real life like when we started burning coal we didn't realize that it was going to have the effect that it would have so we built all these industries around it uh, and whole economies around it at which point it became kind of difficult to just dismantle those you know even if it would be for the greater good so maybe you have some games where climate change is like really severe and you really do have to do something about it maybe you have other games where it's not such a big deal and it's just kind of like a feature of the map. So you don't really know how much of an impact it's going to have on the game until you get to that point where you are industrializing and then all the civs are kind of reacting to it as opposed to being able to plan ahead. Because right now, like, in a lot of the games that I play, you know, my civ and the other AI civs are so far ahead in tech that, like, we're unlocking, like, solar farms and wind farms and carbon recapture, like, before we even get to phase one or two of climate change. At which point it's like, whatever. Like, we don't even have to worry about it because we already have the technologies in place where we, we're, at, we're starting the industrialization process with clean energy. Um, you well, know, so. But also, Civ makes those solutions a lot cleaner than they tend to actually be. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, it's. And it's, easy to implement. Well, that too, yes. Um, man, I wish solar in real life was as good as solar in, like, RimWorld. Oh, my gosh. That would be amazing. <laughs> I wish you could put them up without it being a politics issue, too. That's one of the few things that I would like uh, the the way it works in RimWorld to work in reality, because most of the time, that's not true. <laughs> I don't actually want deer to, like, attack people and kill them in real life in mass. That's, uh, that's not a thing that I would like to see. But the whatever they're doing to get the solar there, that would be amazing. And just quickly, before we move on, the best solution to global warming is nuclear winter. Just saying. This is not Fallout New Vegas. <laughs> as far as you know. 
Yeah, well, moving on, uh, number two on my list of top ten bad ideas is uh, that the defenders get an overwhelming advantage in military military conflicts with relatively little investment. Uh, Yes, you do have to actually build walls in Civilization VI, unlike Civ V, where cities could just bombard right from the start of the game without any investment in infrastructure at all. But uh, once you get walls in Civ VI, like your cities become really tanky and powerful, especially if you also have a bunch of encampments all over the place. And because cities are so close together in Civ V and Civ VI, there's a lot of overlap of that bombardment. So in both games, and in Civ VI in particular, because you also have the encampments, uh, it's surprisingly easy to defend yourself from an invasion without actually having to have a standing army at all, because city bombardment is just so powerful. It gets even worse with a minimal army, too, because, like, now you can double up that bombardment yet again by putting ranginess in those uh, tiles. Or triple up if it's a coastal city, and you can also put a ranged naval unit on that tile as well. Yes. And on top of all that, you only need, like, a few melee units to prevent the city slash encampments whatever from being surrounded. And now the investment to take that is just stupid disproportionate in favor of the defender. Like, the Defender's always had some advantages in Civ games, but man, after Civ 4, it, it's gone out of hand. And it's also compounded by other factors, like with map design. Like, because you have to pay the cost of moving on to rough terrain before you actually move on to the rough terrain, it's a lot... It, it takes longer to get an army into a siege position, and every turn that you spend moving into position without attacking is a turn that that city gets to bombard you back, which is particularly devastating for siege weapons in civilization in particular, because by the time you move your catapult or trebuchet into range, it's probably already taken a bombardment or two and probably won't survive making its own attack. So Not the units too. So the units that are specifically designed for sieging cities are not particularly effective for sieging cities. And uh that's a that's a problem. I have been able to take on, you know, stage of defense in one city and take on the entire army of another civ and live. And it's like, well that feels great when you actually accomplish it in the game, then you think about it later and you go, actually I should have been toast. How the heck did this work? Especially against the AI, which is just bad at using its units in general. Like, it's it's going to be harder to defend your city from an organized human player. But, mm-hmm. like, against the AI, I almost never have to worry about being invaded because it's so easy to repel AI invasions. Yeah, a couple units and uh, a couple units to the screen for your city and a ranged unit. You can even let them attack your city because you could then, then get health back as they expend their hit points on it. You just need enough to prevent them putting it under siege and blocking healing. Right. And the problem, believe it or not, used to be even worse when Civ uh, VI first came out, because it wasn't until the very last update of the New Frontiers pass that they actually added the trebuchet unit into the game. So for the vast majority of Civilization VI's life cycle, we had medieval city walls, but we didn't have a medieval siege weapon that those walls were supposedly intended to counter which I always yeah. thought was a, a weird thing. So the catapults were severely outmatched once medieval walls came online. I feel and like siege units in general have been bad until you get to artillery and can add range to them. Yeah, well, in Civ Five and Civ Six both kind of had the fundamental same problem, which is that the time that it takes to move the siege unit onto a tile where it can hit the city 
And then in Civ 5, you specifically had to spend a turn setting up the unit as well. Uh, it's taking bombardment, and it just doesn't survive those bombardments long enough to actually get its own bombardments off. Yeah, no, Greek General helps there, for sure, in Civ 6. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Actually, you get three movements, so there's a good chance you can move and then shoot the city. And because the general is present, it allows you to move and then shoot the city. But even so, two range on siege is a problem. Yes. Especially since the city gets that two range counter bombardment, like, without really having to have its own siege units. Like, I would get if there was a trebuchet in the city that's attacking the trebuchets that are sieging the city. Those both have the same range. But, yeah, yeah the, the, the siege weapon should probably be able to siege the city from outside the city's bombardment range and should, like, require actual military units to come out and engage them in the field. In the late this game, is- that's true. There's no reason for it not to be true in the early game because that was the whole point of those items. Just give cities uh, a one-tile range for bombardment. Or give siege weapons three range and just make them really weak against units. I feel like three really range are. might be a bit too much. Yeah. It isn't, I, though. Like, look how the late game works with that. Like, you can get up to four range uh, with the promotions and a balloon. And yeah, but those are, those are like, literally artillery. And artillery can be called in from, like, miles away. Well, okay, but, like, a trebuchet in medieval times had much better range than, like, a bow. Yeah, the archers you put on a garrison. The archers and the longbowmen, like on the wall ramparts, were not really able to hit a trebuchet or a catapult that was sieging the city. Like you would have to have your own trebuchets or catapults in the city walls if you wanted to have a chance at hitting from within the city. Yeah. I mean catapults were not actually used that often in siege, but trebuchets were on occasion. And yeah, there's no way. No way contemporary equipment could shoot them back unless they were also using something like that. Yeah, and it you, all... You were just going to take an English longbow and fire at the trebuchet and take it out. That that wasn't a thing. That's about as reasonable as, like, an infantryman just, like, like aiming his rifle at the frigging artillery and firing back at it. Like, that doesn't happen. That's the whole point of these longer-range things, is that they are longer-range. And, yeah, like, the, the, the penalty to siege units damaging, yeah infantry and such in Civ 6 is pretty high. You need a lot of promotions before artillery units start damaging infantry effectively. It's possible, especially with armies against non-armies, and you have a bunch of promotions, including Grape Shot, but you really need heavy investment to make that a threat to units. Uh, so I, I don't see how having a trebuchet with three range in uh, classical to medieval enemy units would be a problem. It would do very little damage. Unless it's just allowed to sit there and slap you until it has a bunch of upgrades, at which point it's your own fault. You're letting a siege unit hit you for free for ages. And uh, I don't know, maybe that gives a pretty good reason to build like a coarser unit or something to actually go out and try to hit those ranged units. Yeah. I mean, or just win the field battle. I mean, your opponent put significant investment into probably multiple siege units, which, uh, you know, if you put that into archers or swordsmen or horsemen, whatever. Uh, you, you can probably win, all else being equal, especially if they're attacking you with these things. Like, there's still defender advantage there, and significant defender advantage there, even with three-range siege. It's just not so stupid free. Like, you actually have to make some investment to defend yourself, which should be the point. You're, we have civilizations that are looking to survive the test of time, and that means that you should actually have to try to survive the test of time. And one of the biggest tests is not getting conquered.
Though one of the biggest obstacles to that is the number one item on my top ten bad ideas list, and kind of to Canis's point, uh, the map is very claustrophobic. Uh, cities are placed generally very close together, leads to lots of overlap of uh, bombardment ranges, but also in Civ Six in particular, terrain is designed to create a lot more bottlenecks and rough terrain, so it's really difficult in Civ Six to have field battles because there are just so many cities all over the map, so close together, uh, that there's just not much field in which to have those battles. So while I would definitely love to be able to have more field battles in Civ VI, uh, like, where would you have them? Uh, so, to Canis's yeah, point, like, with cities so close together, like, yeah, it, it is kind of weird to justify a siege weapon having three range, which is basically allowing that trebuchet or catapult to hit a city from the next city over, which, you know, is also something that is kind of unrealistic. But that's an issue more with map scaling than with, like, the unit balances themselves. Like, the, if you're going to have the, the one unit per tile tactical combat, like, I feel like you really just need more open space. And uh, this was a problem in Civ V. I complained about it in Civ V, but it's even more of a problem in Civ VI because of the unstacking of districts. So not only are there more cities and they're so close together, but the cities themselves take up more physical space. I, mean, I feel it's worse in five than six. Six did a few things to help with it. It still needs work, but you have armies that so you can like merge investments into one tile. Yeah, you have more different layers for units to stand on. Yeah, true. Uh, like, one at least the- tried here. I, I know it's it still gets claustrophobic, but I don't see in Civ Six the kind of just obnoxious stupidity of an AI having a unit on every single hex in its empire without exception. Yeah, that's true. For sure, Civ Six does a lot to try to deter like excessive military unit building in in order to specifically prevent that from happening. But there's still also like certain like issues with the design of the maps themselves that kind of counteract those efforts. Uh, which, as I was mentioning before, like Civ Six is very mountain range happy in its uh, map generation scripts. Like, which is, which is nice. Like, I like having lots of mountains, but sometimes Civ Six's map scripts just love to build massive, impassable walls of mountains where there's maybe like one or two tiles in between them that you can squeeze your units through. And when you have to funnel all your units through there, like it, you know, it, it it's a pain in the butt. I even have this one screenshot on in the blog post for this where there is a mountain range that literally stretches from the northern tip of the continent all the way to one tile short of the southern tip where there is one tile at the southern end of the continent where you can actually pass through this mountain range, uh, which is pretty crazy. At that point, they're basically different continents. Just start, just use your navy. Yeah, I, I really do feel like <laughs> their mountains should be passable to a degree. Like, maybe you lose hit points or something for ending your turn on a mountain, or maybe there's, like, mountains of different height where some are passable and others aren't, where you don't just have this solid wall of mountain that just locks off entire regions of a continent. You could take the paradox concept of mountain versus wasteland where mountains are just very punitive to move through, but not, like, impossible. In Wasteland, armies can't go on them at all. Steal that idea. 
But anyway, thus concludes my personal list of top 10 good and top 10 bad ideas in Civilization VI. I'm sure there's lots of disagreement and room for discussion on these topics, so hopefully this encourages some uh, some discussion uh, on, the, on the forums when we eventually get around to posting this. Yeah, discuss it now while they're still developing it, not after they've already announced features. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, let's. hopefully we can get some of... Uh, ho- hopefully, Firaxis can learn like from the best ideas of Civ Six, uh, and then you know to to move those forward, and then also you know learn lessons from the things that were less well received, so that they can hopefully fix or address those issues. Outro music plays. Line. Okay, thank you for joining us on episode 398 of the podcast. This is the main team, and I have been joined by Canis Albinus. Most of the time, at least. Makalua. Siberty Biberty. And Mega Bears fan. Woohoo, shameless self promotion. <laughs> shameless self promotion yourself. Know you. Your mom? Yep, exactly. There you go. Thanks, uh, man. Old classics. It's been a while. Get out. No. Also, thank you, Magin. <laughs> Stream is ended. Condemn heretic. Gotta find lunch. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 sound clips. Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright the polycast at polycast.net.